We've been in a series called The Drama of Redemption, and in this series, we have sought to highlight the work of Jesus Christ as it is found in redemption. So far in our redemptive journey, we have gone through three books of the Bible, the first being the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, we saw how God, through sovereign grace, called a people to himself from the mass of sinful humanity to send them forth to be a blessing to the nations. The backbone of this blessing would be found in a message that theologians would call the first gospel, which states in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, showing us the mighty work that Christ would accomplish on the cross for his people. Secondly, we came to the great book of Exodus, and in Exodus we saw the omnipotence of God on display as he saved a powerless people from the bondage and tyranny of sin by means, or, or of Egyptian rule, by means of a Passover sacrifice. This foreshadows the work that Christ would do for his people, for in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, it says that Jesus Christ is our Passover sacrifice. And it would be by his sacrifice that he would redeem us from the bondage and tyranny of our sin. Then we camped out in the book of Leviticus for a few weeks. And in Leviticus, we saw the holiness of God on display. And not only the holiness of God, but God's desire to cultivate holiness within his people. The Lord did this by means of a priest and by means of a sacrifice. In Hebrews 1, 3, it says that Jesus Christ is the perfect sacrifice and that by his sacrifice, he would purge us from our sins. In Hebrews 7, 24, it says that Jesus Christ is our eternal high priest and it would be by his sacrifice that he would sanctify his people. Dear ones, do not forget that those whom God calls and redeems, he sanctifies. God may find you in the muck and mire of sin, but he will never leave you that way. God always redeems his people from the power and tyranny of sin. This is why 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, Jesus has made unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. You cannot have sanctification without redemption, nor redemption without sanctification. God saves men and he changes men. He sanctifies men. In Genesis, God calls. In Exodus, God redeems. In Leviticus, God sanctifies. In Numbers, God prepares his people to move forward in the great drama of redemption. The book of Numbers chronicles the move of God's people from Sinai to Kadesh to the borders of the promised land. Now, if you're reading this book like a normal human being, you're going to ask the question, what does the book of Numbers have to do with me? What does a story about a bunch of people in the wilderness and in barrenness have to do with me? What does it have to do with a 21st century Christian living in America? Well, it has everything to do with you. And I believe that the scriptures give us a sufficient answer that it does have everything to do with us. For in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 6, it says this, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers are all under the cloud." And all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Oftentimes when we read 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we miss a little nugget of truth that is presented to us therein. 
That nugget of truth is found in the phrase, in the wilderness. Now, you probably say, what does that have to do with the book of Numbers? Well, it has everything to do with the book of Numbers. When this book was translated from the Hebrew text into the Greek text, it received its title, Numbers. But in the original Hebrew Bible, it is actually called, in the wilderness. So when Paul uses the phrase in the wilderness, he is telling us that the book of Numbers has tremendous significance for the people of God. So much so that in verse 11 he says, Now these things happened to them as an example, that they were, and they were written for our instruction on whom the ages has come. He also gives us examples from the book of Numbers in case we have doubts in the 10th chapter of 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, this is a reference to Numbers 14, 29. The people were kept from the promised land and their bodies dropped in the wilderness because of their sin. 1 Corinthians 10.8 is a reference to Numbers 25, verses 1 and 9, which speaks about the people's sexual immorality and how they suffered under the sin of sexual immorality and they were not able to go into the promised land. 1 Corinthians 10.9 is a reference to Numbers 21.5, which speaks of the serpents biting the people and they are suffering for the sin of murmuring and complaining. Paul is telling the people of God that the book of Numbers has tremendous implications for the people. In his era and in our age. The book of Numbers reveals for us the glory and majesty of God. It reveals to us the wrath of God, the patience of God, the love of God, the mercy of God. It shows us the sinful state of the human heart and it shows us the glory and majesty of the person and work of Jesus Christ because of human sinfulness. The people need to be redeemed. So let us look at the book of Numbers today by God's grace, and we'll look at it in three points. Point number one, God prepares his people. We'll see that in Numbers chapters 1 through 10. Point number two, the problem of God's people. Numbers 11 through 20. And then the promise to God's people as it is found in Numbers 21 through 36. Very well, let's look at our first point. Our first point is found in Numbers chapters 1 through 10, and our point is God prepares his people. And God prepares his people in two ways. He prepares them by his word, and he prepares them by his good providence. Turn with me to Numbers chapter 1, and we'll read the first four verses. Numbers chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month, in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel, by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male, head by head, from twenty years old and upward. All in Israel who are able to go to war, you and Aaron shall list them, company by company, and there, and there shall be with you a man from each tribe each man being the head of the house of his fathers. Notice here that the Lord presents his word as authoritative, particularly in verses 1 through 2. Now, what do I mean by the word of God being authoritative? I mean this, God's word should be the ultimate rule in the lives of God's people, and it should be obeyed passionately by God's people. Notice what God does not do. He does not go to Aaron or Moses. He does not ask Moses for his permission. He does not consult Aaron. He does not petition the children of Israel. God spoke his word, and it was settled. The word of God should be obeyed by God's people, and it should be obeyed passionately. 
And he gives us an example of how the word of God should be obeyed. In Numbers chapter 1, verse 54, he says this, The people did all that the Lord had commanded. A matter of fact, it is when the people do not see the word of God as authoritative that they suffer. In Numbers 14, the people believed the words of man rather than the authoritative word of God. And as a result, they were not able to enter into the promised land. In 2 Samuel 12, 9, Nathan confronts David. Many of you know this story. And when Nathan confronts David, he does not say, David, you've sinned against Bathsheba. David, you've sinned against Uriah. David, you've sinned against the nation. He says, no, David, you have sinned against God. A matter of fact, you have despised the word of God. It was because David did not see the authoritative word of God. He did not take it as authoritative in his life. He suffered. Many of you know that David lost his sons, lost his family, had to be on the run from Saul because of him not obeying the authoritative word of God. Not only is the word of God authoritative in this text, but it is presented to us as sufficient and clear. Sufficient meaning God's word is all that the people of God need and that it is not esoteric or dark in his understanding. There's a story of a man who was reading his Bible at work and he was approached by another Christian. And he says, man, I really I, I, I get great courage out of you reading the word of God, but I can't read it because it's just hard to understand. So he said this to him. He said, okay, let's, let's test your theory. Let's see if that's true. Open up to Genesis 1.1. They read it. He says, who is this talking about? Well, it's talking about God. What, did it say? What, did it, what does it say about God? Well, it says he created the heavens and the earth. What don't you understand about that, sir? The word of God is sufficient and clear. In Numbers chapter 1, verse 2, God says to take a census. In Numbers 1, verse 3, God gives them the ages of all who could be a part of the census. And he specifically says, I want you to count the males. And then in verse 4, God gives the names of the leaders who are to lead each individual tribe. Now, Moses and Aaron didn't stand around and say, well, I wonder what God meant by ages 20 and up. I wonder what God meant by, by just selecting the males out. Maybe we need to go and do some more exegesis and get some more Greek and Hebrew commentaries and figure out what God's meaning. No, the word of God is sufficient and clear for God's people. It is authoritative. It is sufficient. It is clear. God does not give his people in this text visions, dreams, angelic visitations. God does not call his people to go to the latest prophetic conference to hear a word from the mighty prophet Behuchibu. He just gives them his word and the word is sufficient, authoritative and clear that the people can follow it and obey it. The word of God for God's people in the wilderness is sufficient and clear and it should be sufficient and clear for us today. In Matthew 4.4, Jesus says this, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He got that from Deuteronomy 8.3. If the Lord Jesus Christ believed the word of God to be sufficient, authoritative, and clear, then we as the people of God in this day and age should believe the word of God is authoritative, sufficient, and clear. No questions asked. God's word is not only authoritative, sufficient, and clear. It is purposeful. You know, in this day and age, people do not believe that. We have all types of books written today on finding your purpose. 100 steps to a better you. 10 steps to the greatest life. How to get rich and die trying the gospel way. We have all types of books out there that talk about how to find your purpose at the expense of the word of God. It is the word of God that gives the people real purpose. 
It is when we see the glory and majesty of God in the face of Jesus Christ in the gospel that we have purpose. And it is through that it will give you more purpose for all of the eternities combined. The word of God gives people purpose. In verse 3, notice here, God doesn't just say, hey, I want you to count the people. I'm God, feeling good today. I want you to count the people. No, God gives them a purpose. He says, I want you to count the people because they're going to war. Dear ones, the word of God always gives people the purpose for their lives. There's a man that uh, I know, and he, a very talented man, and was, was recruited highly for basketball, got, went to school, got kicked out of college, went to the military, got kicked out of the military, can't keep a steady job, and no one will have nothing to do with this guy, basically. And he called me up, said, you're the only guy that will talk to me. He says, but I want to tell you this, I don't see any purpose in life. It's just a drag. What is the purpose of life? So I said, well, let's sit down. I, I don't have the answers in and of myself, but I believe the word of God could give us some answers. So I sat down with him, went through some books of the Bible with him. Then we went through Revelation chapter 4. And I know some of you are like, Revelation? What in the world? We did go through Revelation chapter 4 because I wanted him to see the glory and majesty of God. But you can see it clearly in Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. In the New Living Translation, it says this. This is why God created. It says, it is for your pleasure, O Lord, that creation exists. Then I read to him Colossians 1.16. All things are created by him and for him. And I said, sir, you were not created for basketball primarily or to be in the military primarily or to have a great job primarily. You were created for the glory and majesty of God. And if you're living outside of that purpose, you are not living the Word of God gives people purpose. You were created for the glory and majesty of God. The Word of God gives us purpose. It is authoritative, sufficient, clear, and purposeful. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 in the New Living Translation says this, All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It straightens us out and teaches us what to do. It is God's way of preparing us in every way. Listen to that. It is God's way of preparing us in every way, fully equipped for every good thing God wants us to do. If you're going to be prepared, you're going to be prepared like these people in the wilderness were prepared by the authoritative, sufficient, clear, and purposeful word of God. Do you see God's word as authoritative? Do you see it as purposeful, sufficient, and clear? You must see it as that. A few days ago, a few weeks ago, I should say, my son Aiden was sick. And we got the call, Aiden's sick. And we asked a question, how do you know he's sick? I know that might sound like bad parenting, but we did ask that question. How do you know he's sick? Well, he will not eat his lunch. And if anyone knows my son Aiden, he might mess over his dinner, he might mess over his breakfast, but his lunch, he cherishes it. It is like the Ark of the Covenant to him. He just goes in and he destroys it, and it's like a nuclear explosion happened in his lunchbox when you clean it out. He loves his lunch. But something had gotten in. Something had taken away his appetite for his lunch. Dear ones, has something taken away your appetite for the Word of God? 
Can you go a week without it? Can you go days without it? Can you go months without it? Can you go years without picking up the word of God? Perhaps something has slipped in. My son had strep throat. Perhaps something has slipped in to your spiritual life. Perhaps a love for the world. Perhaps some secret sin. Perhaps stress or worry or just the inconvenience of reading the Bible. Dear ones, if you're going to be prepared by God like the people in the wilderness were prepared, you're going to have to be prepared by his authoritative, sufficient, and clear word. Not only does God prepare his people in the wilderness by his word, he prepares his people in the the wilderness by his good providence. Now, what do I mean by providence? Uh, Theologian Louis Burkhoff gives us this little tight, uh, condensed definition of the word providence. He says this, that the providence of God is that continued exercise of the divine energy whereby the creator preserves, governs, and directs all things to their appointed ends for his glory. This doctrine is, is proved to us or shown to us through the scriptures. Hebrews 1.3, God upholds all things by the word of his power. Nehemiah 9.6, you preserve and give life to everything. Ephesians 1.11, God works all things out according to the counsel of his will. Now, if you have the Bible, Logos Bible software or some type of Greek lexicon or Hebrew lexicon, if you go there and you look up all things, it simply means all things. All things work together for the good of God's people, even the good things and the bad things. John Piper calls this the bittersweet providence of God. I believe Piper, and I don't want to put words in his mouth, but this is why I believe he titled his book this way. It is because from the human perspective, we look at the providence of God as bitter and sweet. When we get a new house, a new job, or we get new friends, hey man, just got married. God is at work in our lives. But no, God is at work in every event of your life for his glory and your joy. The providence of God is seen at work in the Hebrew people in two ways. Number one, his providence is shown in his great care for his people, and his providence is shown through trial to sanctify his people. Numbers chapter one, God instructs his people to to count and to identify their leaders. He's concerned with who their leaders are, and he wants the people to know who their leaders are. In Numbers chapter 2, he tells them how to assemble around the tabernacle because God wants to be in the midst of his people. He desires his people. Deuteronomy 32, 9, the inheritance of God are his people. Numbers 3, 4, and 5, God instructs the Levites on how to fulfill their functions. He talks about laws of purity and marital fidelity. Number 6, God informs the Hebrew people on how to become Nazarites. Numbers 7, 8, 9, 10, he instructs them on Passover, on the Passover sacrifice, sacrifices in general, and how to move forward in the wilderness with the use of trumpets. And particularly in Numbers chapter 10, I believe verse 34, God himself leads his people out. He goes in front of his people because if an army were to meet the people, they would meet God first before they even got to the people. And many of you know they're not going to even get to the people because God's going to take care of them. 
God is showing us in this, in his good, caring providence, that he loves his people. He cares about your marriages. He cares about your sanctities. He cares about the small things, the big things, the middle things of your life. He cares about every minute detail of your life. We do not serve this unfeeling God who just sits in the heavenlies and is a robot and is like, well, that can just happen to them. I'm not worried about it. I'm not thinking about it. God cares about his people. Providence of God is not only seen through his caring of his people, but it is seen through him walking his people through trials for his own glory and purposes and your joy. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, if you want to turn there, Deuteronomy chapter 8, God, Moses is talking to the Hebrew people about what they have just come out of. They have just come out of the wilderness they just went through the narratives that were, are, were explained in Numbers, and here they are about to go into the promised land. And Moses gives them the reasons as to why they went through all of these hardships. He says this in 2 through 8, Deuteronomy chapter 8, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you, and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor your fathers uh, knew, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by the word, every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years, nor know then that, your, that your, in your heart, as a man disciplines his son, the Lord disciplines you. The Lord takes us through trials to sanctify us, to expose our hearts. He shows us those deep-rooted, embedded sins that we might put them to death. There's a man that I know who was affected by this economic downturn. He was laid off, looked for a job, found a job, making 50% less than what he was making on his previous job. And he would go home and complain to God day after day, night after night. And as he was reading his Bible, he went through Matthew 6 that talks about the provision of God and the providence of God and how God will take care of his people. And he was crushed. He realized at that time that he did not have great faith and he did not trust God. As a matter of fact, he trusted in his degree and he trusted in his own wit and knowledge and he was exposed of having not trusted in the gracious, loving God that we served. Now, had he not gone through that trial, he would have never have seen the malignancy of his sin. God exposed his heart that he may deal with his sin. Secondly, God takes us through trial that he may wean us of our love for the world. There are things that happen in this world. I, myself, you might look at me and say, oh, this guy's 34 years old, never went through anything. He's just 34 years old, can't, can't have gone. He's married, got kids. I lost a son. I had to look at my wife on the bed with blood everywhere and hear the doctor say, you're going to lose your wife, sir. And if that does not wake you up and take from your heart the love for the world, I don't know what else can. God takes these trials and uses them for his own glory. 
Number three, God takes us through these trials to make us more like his son. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, and just give you a little background of this. In verse 18 of Romans chapter 8, God talks about through Paul the trials that are in creation, the trials that are upon the people of God. He talks about how the Spirit of God bears us up in those trials. They are trying things. They are hard. We are weak. And God in His grace, His Spirit prays the the exact prayer that we need through these trials. And He gives us the purpose of these trials in 28 and 29. Notice what He says here. For we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. What is your purpose, Lord? What is your purpose? Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The purpose of God in these trials is that we may be conformed to the image of his son. The great Puritan Thomas Manton once said this, God had one son without sin but none without suffering. Hebrews 5.8 says, Jesus learned obedience through the things that he suffered. Dear ones, remember that when you're going through trial, God is even at work in those things for his glory and your joy to conform you to the image of Christ. God must prepare his people by his word and by his providence. He must prepare them because they are under the bondage and jurisdiction of sin. They're not only under the bondage and jurisdiction of sin, but they love their sin. This brings us to our second point, the problem of God's people, as it is seen through Numbers chapters 11 through 20. You will see the radical, the black drop of radical depravity on display, that black velvet backdrop. Turn with me to Numbers chapter 11. Let's get a quick glimpse of this. Numbers chapter 11, we'll read the first 10 verses. It says, The people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outlying parts of the camp. The people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and and the fire died down. So the people of that place, so so the name of that place was called Taberah. Because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Now the rabble was among them and had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Now the manna was like coriander seed and its appearance like that of bdellium. And the people went about and gathered it, gathered it and ground it in hand mills or beat it in mortars and boiled it in pots and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. When the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell with it. And Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent, and the anger of the Lord blazed hotly. And Moses was displeased. Notice here that God is giving us some insight in 
to the nature of sin. God presents sin as insane here. It is, we're, we're looking at the insanity of sin. Notice here that the people do not complain to Moses. They do not complain to Aaron. They do not complain to the leaders of the tribes. They complain directly to God. Notice here verse 1. And the people complain in the hearing of the Lord. Sin is irrational. It lacks common sense. It causes us to have low views of God. These people did not see the holiness of God. Habakkuk 1.13, that God is of pure eyes, that he cannot behold of sin or look upon sin. They did not see the sovereign and all-powerful God. Deuteronomy 32.39, none can save from his hand. They did not see the justice of God. They did not see the omnipresence of God, that God was in their midst. Psalm 139. When we sin, it is as if we walk into the throne room of God and sin right before him. How insane is sin? It's so insane that when Solomon meditated upon it, he says this in Ecclesiastes 9.3, the hearts of the children of men are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. Sin is not just insane because we do it in the presence of God. It is insane because we sin against God. It is one thing to hit the person sitting next to you. It is another thing to hit President Obama. You will be brought up on charges. I can guarantee you that. It is another thing to waltz into the throne room of God and to strike God. Numbers 14 11. God says this to Moses, the people did not sin against you. They did not sin against Aaron. They have sinned against me. When we sin, we do it in the presence of God. When we sin, we sin against God. This is a presentation of the heinousness of sin. This is why Jeremiah Burroughs called it the evil of evils. This is why Ralph Venning called it the plague of all plagues. Sin is irrational. It is insane. Not only is sin insane, but it is something that is deeply rooted within our hearts. Notice here in Numbers chapter 11, verse 4. Now the rabble was among them and had a strong craving. Now that verb crave there speaks of a deep-seated, deep-rooted passion that is coming from within. Our desire to sin is coming from our hearts. This is why Jeremiah 17 and 9 says that the heart is desperately wicked above all things. Who can know it. Proverbs 20, verse 9, asks this question. Who can cleanse his heart? Who can purge it of sin? The question is absolutely no one but God himself. Sin is deeply rooted within the hearts of men, and it is causing them this madness. Not only is sin Maddening, not only does it come from the heart, but sin is deceptive. Notice here in verse 4 and 5. Now the rabble was that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. These people had a selective memory. All they could see was the pleasure of sin. They couldn't see the danger of sin. Think about it. These people wanted to have leek, melon, and onion stew with a little fish mixed in it. I mean, that had to be a horrendous smell. 
But these people could not see the horrendous nature of sin. They soon forgot the destructive nature of sin. They could no longer hear the harsh voice of their taskmaster. They could no longer see his abrasive face and the death that they face at the hands of their taskmaster. They could no longer hear Pharaoh's decree to throw all of your male babies into the Nile. Now, if you know anything about the Nile, it is filled with animals, frogs, snakes, hippos, and it is infested with crocodiles. There is no doubt that some of those people threw their babies into that water. Some of them watched them drown. Some of them watched their children being torn to shreds. Sin is so powerful in the life of people that it does not show you its true intent. Sin will give you pleasure. It will whisper sweet nothings in your ear, tell you everything's okay, everything feels good, but it will come back and it will pay you wages. It will not pay you wages in gold. It will not pay you wages in money. It will pay you wages in death. That's all sin knows how to do. It is deceptive. Notice here also the pervasive nature of sin that is presented in Numbers chapter 11, verses 4 through 10. Notice here, first of all, just to give you a glimpse, that this sin breaks out in a small group of people called the rabble. They had a strong craving, then it moves forward a little bit, and it goes to some of the people in Israel. And then in verse 10, notice what it says, Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, and everyone, notice, everyone at the door of his tent complaining. You can't just take sin and hide it in your office or hide it in your car or hide it some other place. Sin is pervasive. It will come out into every area of your life. This is why Numbers 32, 20, 23 says, your sin will surely find you out. You may be able to hide your sin from Robert, Raymond, Chris. You may be able to hide your sin from those sitting next to you. But your sin is in the open before God. And rest assured that your sin will surely find you out. If it doesn't find you out in this life, it will find you out in the next. And in that time, it will be too late. Sin is pervasive. And sin draws the wrath of God towards it. In Numbers chapters 11 through 20, you will see God's wrath on display. Now, this is not just God's wrath because he's some kind of capricious deity. He's, he's like a human being. He wakes up one morning and says, hey, I'm feeling like God, feeling mad, want to just crush some people. That's not God. Romans 1.18 says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. In Colossians 3.6, Paul gives us this list of sins that proceed from the hearts of man. And he says, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God is due to the people because of their sin. They have the problem of their sin, and they have the problem of God's wrath. Notice here in Numbers 11, just to give you a brief summary here. Numbers 11, the wrath of God descends twice. Once in the beginning of the chapter, and at the end of the chapter. In Numbers chapter 12, Miriam and Aaron, they experience the wrath of God because of their complaints. In Numbers 15, the, a Sabbath breaker is executed. Numbers 16, Dathan, Abiram, and Korah are swallowed up under the wrath of God. Now let me give you some insight into this. 
when you read this, this is shocking. Not only were these three men judged, but their wives, their babies, their teenagers, their maids, their butlers, their money, their possessions, their homes, their friends, everyone associated with these men, swallowed up in a great sinkhole under God's wrath. And it says that the sight of it was so terrible that the people ran away screaming. And you could hear them going down screaming. Does that offend you? Does the wrath of God offend you? We want to hide God off in the closet like he's our, our old uncle, you know, the old wino uncle that we've had. We want to hide him off in the closet. But this is a part of God's excellency. He must deal with sin because if he does not deal with sin, sin will contaminate everything. We get a clear view of what God thinks about sin. There is something about God that we just don't understand. And I can't stand up here and tell you that I understand it. But God abhors sin. And he deals with, he deals with it in this way. Does this offend you? There was a man that approached Dr. Vodi Bakum, And he said this to him. He said, Dr. Bakum, if God is so good, why do all of these tragedies happen? Why is there destruction in the world? You tell me why, Dr. Bauckham. Why do these things happen? And Dr. Bauckham said this. He said, listen, I think you're asking me the wrong question. The young man was shocked. He said, what I think you meant to ask me was this. If God is so holy, if he is so righteous, why do any of us draw breath? Why do any of us exist? That should be the real question. You see, what the people deserve in the wilderness is utter obliteration under the wrath of God because the wages of sin is death. I ask you this, friends. Where are the Hittites today? Where are the Canaanites today? They no longer exist. But the people of Israel, they still go forward. The people deserve the wrath of God to the utmost. Moses even is ta tapped by sin he sins, he not only sins, but he draws his brother into his sin. And God tells Moses in Numbers Moses that he cannot, in Numbers 20, he cannot go into the promised land. Not only that, but his brother can't go. God tells Moses, listen, this is what you're going to do. You're going to go up to the mountain. You're going to go up there with Aaron's son. You're going to walk your brother, your dear brother, up to the mountain. You're going to take off his priestly robe. And then you're going to put it on his son. Then afterwards, you're going to watch your brother die. Because of sin. Think of the heinousness of this thing. Moses' brother was probably his best friend. He spoke for Moses in front of Pharaoh. The camaraderie there was great. And he had to watch his brother die. Think like a human here. If you have a brother or sister, mother, father, you are pained to think about what Moses had to go through. He walks down that mountain, and I can see Moses' face. Everything he had desired is gone. He desired to go into the promised land. He desired to see the joy of the people in the promised land. He desired to see God's promise fulfilled to his people. But all he can see is sin. This never-ending revolving door of sin, wrath, and temporal sacrifice. A temporal sacrifice. 
will never deal with the eternal problem of God's wrath. And Moses knows it. Yes, God is gracious. He gives them temporal sacrifices, but it does not solve the problem. Moses, everything he desired is gone. 14,700 die in the wilderness, according to Numbers 1648. Those who did not believe the authoritative word of God die. 500,000, maybe to a million people do not make it into the promised land because of sin and the just wrath of God. Moses sees death. He smells death. There was uncleanness in the camp because if you read numbers, if you touch a dead body, you are unclean. There was uncleanness in the camp. There was guilt upon the faces of the people. There was guilt with Moses. How could he lead his brother this way? There was guilt all around. And Moses wrote about his experience. His lament is found in Psalm 90, and it says this, You have swept them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone. Notice he puts himself in this. And we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger? And your wrath according to the fear of you? Nahum asks the same question years later. He says it this way. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? God, who can deal with your wrath? Who can deal with our sin? We're constantly sinning. We're under your wrath. Who can deal with this issue? This is why God must make a promise to his people. Because his people are under the jurisdiction and control of sin. They love their sin and they are deserving the just wrath of God. Something has to happen in the great drama of redemption to deal with the dual problem of mankind. Sinfulness and the just wrath of God. This brings us to our last point. Which is the promise to God's people. The promise to God's people. In Numbers Chapters 21, God begins to move his people forward. They experience a victory over the Canaanites. They go forward. God moves him in numbers, the people in Numbers 21 through 36. He introduces the new leader to the nation, Joshua. And then in the latter parts of the chapters, God gives them instructions on the land, how to divide the land up and how the land is their inheritance and their rest. And then in the midst of all of these stories, we see behind the black velvet backdrop of human sinfulness, the diamond of the drama of redemption, the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ shine brightly. In Numbers chapter 21, let's read here. Numbers 21, verse 4. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? 
For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that, they, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if, if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. I want you to notice a few things from this text here. Notice who provides this bronze serpent. God himself provides this bronze serpent. This is a means of grace. God does not have to do it. He is not obligated to do it. But God, out of his great compassion and love, provides this bronze serpent that the people may be healed of these serpent bites. The capricious deities of the pagans, they don't do anything like this. They're just mad just to be mad. They're not mad because of sin. They're not upset. They're not wrathful due to sin. They're just upset, just to be upset. They call the people to placate wrath. But God placates his own wrath as a means of grace for his people. Because, see, his people are under the dominion of sin. They cannot placate the wrath of God. The Puritans used to say that we are saved by God, for God, and from God. Notice number two, that God instructs the Hebrew people to look at the serpent on the pole. Not to look at their works, not to look at their sin, but at the serpent alone. This, in this story, God speaks to us about the sufficiency of Christ upon the cross. He provides Jesus Christ for us in the great drama of redemption. We don't provide Christ. God provides Christ. He does not have to provide Christ. There are a whole race of beings that God never gave an opportunity for redemption. The angels, they sin, boom, gone. Cast down to hell. They never had an opportunity. But God bypasses them to look at humans who don't even have the same regal dignity of angels. He sends his son. Turn with me to John 3, 14. Actually, let's look at 13. John 3, 13, Jesus says this, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Notice this in verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God is saying, or he is answering Moses' question, who can deal with the wrath, God? Who can deal with human sin, 
sinfulness. He's answering Nahum also. Who can stand before your indignation? Jesus Christ is more than sufficient to stand before God's indignation and wrath. On that day on the cross, it was one of the most dreadful days in human history. John Piper says this is when the spectacular sin of human beings was on display, that they killed the Son of God. God came down in great darkness on that day. Psalm 18 says that when God judges people, David said that when God judges his enemies, he came down. And under his feet were great darkness. In Exodus, when God judged the people, he came in great darkness. In Revelation, in the narratives of, in the apocalyptic narratives, in Matthew 24, Luke 21, Mark 13, the book of Revelation, God will come in darkness to judge the people. They love darkness, he judges them by darkness. And it was on that day that God descended on that cross in the black armor of wrath, in the black armor of darkness. And he crushed his son to such an extent that his son cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus Christ stood in the white hot flame of God's wrath for three and a half hours. And he did something that no one could ever do. He exhausted the wrath of God and he paid for your sins. And he looked at his father and he said, Father, it is finished. And it was on that day for everyone who would ever believe on Christ that God removed the black armor of wrath on that day. And under that armor was the sweet-smelling garments of love. And this is why God, it is said of him, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. This is why in Romans 5, 6, and 8 it says, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God is just not a God of wrath. He is a God of love and mercy. At the cross, justice and peace met. They kissed. They reconciled. And for everyone who ever believed in Christ, now they are free from the bondage and dominion of sin. And they do not have to worry about the unmitigated wrath of God ever again. The people were given one more promise. They were to go into the land. And Hebrews 3 and 4 tells us that the land is a symbol of rest and peace. Well, God is not giving us a plot of land today. You have to go out and actually buy it, get a mortgage, all that stuff. But he does give us rest and peace. For in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Jesus says, Come unto me, all you who are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And I wish I could come out there and beg each and every last one of you that do not know Christ to lay down the weapons of your rebellion. Repent, turn from your sins. Believe on Jesus Christ. For it is in him that God deals with your sin and he deals with his wrath. If you come to him, he will in no wise cast you out. Jesus Christ 
is the great pinnacle of the drama of redemption. God will redeem the people of Israel through Jesus Christ, and he will redeem his people today through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Father God, I come to you in the name of Jesus. I thank you for another opportunity to preach your word. I pray that your word go down deep into the hearts of your people. I pray that your word would save someone today, that you would bring your children home through your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.